the focus for the ministry staff and uh, lay elders this year is prayer. We will be talking through various elements of prayer, starting with adoration this morning. While it is true every time that I get up to teach, uh, but more so on this one, um, I will be preaching to myself um, as I'm sharing God's word with you. Um, Even those of us, those among us um, who pray all kinds of long intercessory prayers filled with thanksgiving and uh, supplications could use the posture of adoration before our God. Um, So my goal this morning um, is to show you from the scriptures how it is replete with the adoration of our God using 1 Chronicles 29 as a launching point and um, exhort us to do so in our prayers um, and beyond. Um, Instead of our usual style of exposition, pure exposition, uh, I should say, um, I'll be doing a mixture of exposition and topical. Uh, please do get ready to flip some pages in your Bibles and jot down references. Uh, before we move forward, um, I want to see God's help again in the ministry of his word. Would you please pray with me? Holy, righteous, and merciful God, we thank you for this privilege and opportunity to be under the ministry of your inspired, inerrant, infallible, and timeless truths from your word. We praise you because you have magnified your word according to all your name. We beg you that your word would not return void, but instead would accomplish your intended will and be fruitful. Would you please help me? your unworthy mouthpiece to clearly explain the sense behind the scriptures that I might stand approved before you. Be glorified, increased, and exalted, and may we be decreased and eclipsed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Among Christian circles, we often use the words adoration and praise interchangeably, but they are different. Adoration is about the attitude of the heart. Praise could be an expression of adoration, amongst other things. R.C. Sproul used to teach that the whole time of prayer should be in the posture of adoration. So not just a segment in prayer. So what is adoration then? How would we define it? The best definition of adoration I have come across is from Spurgeon. He said, quote, Adoration is the fullness the height and depth, the length and breadth of praise. Adoration is the fullness, the height and depth, the length and breadth of praise. Adoration seems to me to be as the starry heavens, which are always telling the glory of God, and yet there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. It is the eloquent silence of a soul that is too full for language. To prostrate yourself in the dust in humility, and yet to soar aloft in sublime thought, to sink into nothing, and yet to be so enlarged as to be filled with all the fullness of God. To have no thought, and yet to be all thought. To lose yourself in God, this is adoration. To lose yourself in God, this is adoration. This should be the frequent state of the renewed mind, end quote. When we say losing yourself in God is adoration, we're not talking about some mystic and out-of-this-world kind of experience. That would be unbiblical. We are talking about walking with God with a certain posture of the heart 
and an attitude of the mind. When we recognize and understand who our God is, the posture of adoration will permeate every aspect of our lives, including prayer. It becomes the natural response. While adoration and praises are technically different, uh, they are intertwined like strands of the same kind, um, each leading to another. Like the alternate current that can go forwards and backwards, adoration leads us to praise God and praising God leads us to adoration. Um, adoration and praises of God are like the DNA strands that make up our spiritual genetics. So how does losing yourself in God look like, practically speaking? We'll look at that this morning from our sermon text. Um, If you were with us during the beginning of this year, you might remember our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, uh, the model prayer that Jesus used to teach his disciples how to pray. In that prayer, there is a phrase, hallowed be your name. The default human tendency is to read that phrase as simply an acknowledgement of an existing truth, as if it reads, hallowed is your name. We take it to mean that, our Father in heaven, your name is holy. But this prayer is not simply an assertion that God's name is holy, but rather it is a petition. The very first thing that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, is to petition God that his name, the name of God, would be regarded as holy here on earth as it is in heaven. Everything that we do as the body of Christ is so that God's name would be hallowed on the earth as it is already in heaven. But how exactly do we hallow God's name? When more and more people become his children and God's will of conforming them to the image of his begotten son is being accomplished, it hallows God's name. As a result of lives being regenerated by the gospel, they start to worship God in adoration. That hallows God's name. As John Piper said, missions exist because worship doesn't. In other words, God's children can and do hallow God's name in worshipful adoration by acknowledging who he is and praising him for it, even as the kingdom of God is being extended here on earth. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Training ourselves to observe who God is and his characteristics from the pages of scripture and incorporate an element of adoration and praise, not only in our prayers, but also in other areas of our lives. In First Chronicles 29, David blessed the Lord, acknowledging his surpassing greatness as the creator, sustainer, provider, king, sovereign, righteous, preserver, in stark contrast with the humanity. In this passage, we see God as head over all, who delights in uprightness, who is generous with his people, whose providence covers our limited existence here on earth and beyond. And that God is acknowledged as our father. This passage also acknowledges who we really are as vagabonds, sojourners. And yet, we get to learn from our Father of his nature, praise him as we get to know him, imitate his character here on this life's journey. So First Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 20, is teaching us to understand who God is, recognize who we are, and humbly worship him in adoration. When we realize who we really are, in the light of 
our comprehension of God. The natural responses are fear, awe, adoration, praise, and worship. But where do we start? Didn't the uh, famous philosopher Socrates say, man, know thyself? Should we start with trying to figure out who we are? Or should we start with God? This passage offers a clear guidance. We start with God. This is a magnificent prayer, one of the richest passages of the exaltation of God. It's a model of adoration for worshipers in every age. It is centered not on David, who has accomplished so much, not on Solomon, God's chosen to build this temple, and not even on the future temple itself, but solely on God and his kingdom. The covenant name of God, Yahweh, translated as Lord in all capitals, is used nine times in these ten verses. The word God, Elohi, is used seven times. In reference to God, the word you has been used 12 times. The word your, 11 times. The word yours, three times. The word yourself, one time. Do you see why the proper high view of God is important for us to develop this habit of adoration? So let's consider some adoration principles from this passage. Adoration principle number one, losing yourself in God starts with recognizing who God is. Losing yourself in God starts with recognizing who God is. We see that in verses um, 10 through 13. Look at verse 10. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all of the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our father, forever and ever. What does it mean to bless the Lord? How do we understand this phrase, David blessed the Lord? What does the psalmist often say? I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Or bless the Lord of my soul and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. In fact, the Lord God himself commanded it in Deuteronomy 8 verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied... You shall bless the Lord your God in the, for the good land he has given you. How could the creatures who depend on the gracious blessings of the Lord bless the Lord God who is our creator and has it all in himself? In the scriptures, when it relates to us, the mortal beings, the word blessed, in the Hebrew, it's way barak or simply barak, the Greek word eulogio, from which we derive our word eulogy, this word blessed, referred to what we receive from God, whether covenantal, spiritual, physical, material, and etc. Always undeserved. At the same time, when it relates to God, we do not confer a blessing upon God, but it stands to represent our humble praises and well-deserved exaltation and glory due his name because of his blessedness. In other words, we get from God what we do not deserve, salvation. But we give to God what he deserves, our adoration and praises. Every time scripture calls us to bless the Lord, it means to ascribe worth to God, ascribe greatness and goodness, to speak well of, exalt, praise, worship, even as we humble ourselves before him. And that's what we see David doing here. 
Um, he blessed the Lord in the sight of all of the assembly, the corporate gathering of the theocracy of Israel. The second half of this verse has the same English word, blessed, relating to God. Blessed are you, O Lord God. If we could comprehend and understand the meaning and significance behind this one word, praise and adoration will automatically follow. Who God is, is encapsulated in this word. One of the Puritans said, if the outward manifestation of the life of God is called his glory, the inward life is called his blessedness. If the outward manifestation of the life of God is called his glory, the inward life is called his blessedness. God is eternally and infinitely self-satisfied. He has no frustrated or unfulfilled desires. He has no rivals who can thwart his purposes. Nothing can disrupt his perfect peace and joy. He is the best, the greatest, and infinitely happiest of all, and eternally so. He is accountable to none and controlled by none. He is uncorrupted by evil. He is the possessor of all good. As a Trinitarian God, he is eternally never alone. God did not create the world out of need. God does not sustain the world out of need. And God absolutely did not offer redemption to the world out of need. And that's God's blessedness. We don't know of anyone or anything who is like that but the God of the Bible, Yahweh. And that warrants us to humble ourselves and worship God in adoration. And we see David modeling for us here. Notice what David praises God for. Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. David is rehearsing the faithfulness of God in his praise. The reason there was even a corporate assembly uh, was because of God's faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who's called Israel and his descendants. Each generation that experienced the faithfulness of God firsthand exalted the name of the Lord during their lifetime. Now David recognizes that such an exaltation of a faithful God should be forever and ever. Then David goes on to affirm and describe what belongs to the Lord in his praise. Look at verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Israel as a nation has seen it all. All of the mighty miracles in Egypt, 40 years of provision and fruitfulness in the wilderness, winning wars in the promised land and humiliating trained warriors with untrained former slaves, young men who were born and brought up in the wilderness. Ever heard of earth's rotation stopping? Sun, moon, and thus time itself standing still? The famous English quote from the 13th century, time and tide, wait for no man, became a lie that day. Men and women of Israel did not accomplish any of this. But God's mighty hand has accomplished it all for them. 
and it, and it has been passed down through generation in obedience to God's command, lest they forget how awesome their God is. As David models for us here, every remembrance of this greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty of God in the heavens and in the earth needs to spring forth adoration and praises. David may be the earthly king of Israel, but he knows and acknowledges God as head over all. This dominion of God is directly associated with the kingdom of God in the Lord's Prayer, where God's dominion ensures that his perfect will is being carried out, and we pray for it to be established here on earth as it is already in heaven. Look at verse 12. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. God owns everything, orchestrates everything, and provides everything. It ought to be a great encouragement to every believer that God who possesses everything does not withhold, but he freely gives to his people far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Whether we are a nobody or somebody, rich or poor or somewhere in the middle, we ought to live our lives in the adoration of God in our God-assigned station. So how did our forefathers of faith, besides David, go about this adoration of God? Let's look at the pattern of adoration of God from the scriptures. In Genesis 9, even when blessing his son Shem, Noah blessed the Lord. He said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. If a godly legacy and blessings ever were to reach the next generation, that's God's work, and we praise God for it. Exodus 15, the song of Moses, where the nation of Israel praised God for his power, strength, greatness, excellence, loving kindness, and his everlasting reign. We can keep quoting other men and women who have gone before us. Joshua's prayer of praise, Hannah's, Samuel's, Solomon's temple dedication prayer, other godly Judean king's prayer, Ezra's, Nehemiah's, Job's, prayers of praise from major and minor prophets, and scores of psalms. Their praises of adoration, the exaltation of God, of who he is and what he has done and what he has promised to accomplish. All of it is recorded for us in the scriptures that we might learn to live our lives in adoration of our God. Even the famous Psalm 8, instead of just merely pass on the detail that man is the crown of God's creation, the author of the Psalm starts and ends the song with praises of God and exalting God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Because recognizing God-ordained dignity in human life starts with acknowledging who it came from, God. And that leads us to the adoration of God. Please turn with me to Psalm 145. Psalm 145, the psalm is one of the unique psalms for many reasons. Um, It has an acrostic pattern. 
in which each verse of the psalm begins with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, though, um, it, it, although it does miss one, um, and its title is also unique. The other psalms are for very specific reasons. Praise for the Lord's mercies, and so on. Even if they are generic, they simply say a psalm of David, psalm of Asaph, and so on. But this title, of all the 150 psalms, this is the only one bearing this title, a psalm of praise of David. Please follow along as I read it. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your obvious... Let me repeat that. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. To make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. As I was reading, did you observe the multitude of words David uses here? Look back at verse 1. Extol, bless, praise. Declare, meditate, speak, tell, eagerly utter, shout, verse 11, talk, and verse 12, make known. Every single one of them are a form of true and legitimate adoration of God. If we claim to have the proper biblical high view of God, but our lives are devoid of these activities, We may need to examine our lives to see if we know God experientially. Biblically speaking, adoration of God has both internal and external expressions such as these. Of course, there is no universal way of doing things. The way Sam Carl is going to extol God is going to be different from my brother Bert Harris, how he's going to do that. But it needs to be part of every single believer's lives. You can't read a psalm like this and come to a conclusion, God is just like us and love a throw-up-worthy book like Shack. God is unlike us in every way as David described God here. Adoration of God is not just, a, just an Old Testament concept. If God is unchanging, the New Testament should be replete with it too. And it does. And that's what we find from the birth accounts of Jesus in the Gospels to the book of Revelation. Let's read the crown passage of it all. Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. 
Ephesians 1. I pray that your hearts would be swelled up with gratitude, praise, and adoration, even as I read it. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him we also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end, that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. There is a singular prime reason that we exist, whether we live here on earth or in heaven, isn't it? That is to the praise of his glory. And there are so many reasons given in this passage to do that. Praise God that he chose us in Christ Jesus purely by his grace. Praise God that he blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Praise God that he revealed to us the mystery of his will in Christ Jesus. Praise God that he helped us to understand the message of truth in Christ Jesus. Praise God that he saved us from the sin and death and gave us life through Christ Jesus. Praise God that he sealed us with the Holy Spirit of promise because of the gift of faith in Christ Jesus. It is one thing to recognize that our God is awesome. It is another thing to recognize that that awesome God is your God through faith in Christ Jesus. Do we not have enough reasons to bow in adoration before God and break forth into praises? Besides such rich passages, there are also many small poems um, of praise in the New Testament. For example, Mary's Magnificat and Zechariah's prophecy from Luke 1, the humility and exaltation of Jesus' passage from Philippians 2, and many more from the book of Acts and the other epistles. Listen to me as I read one of them from an epistle. And start observing and look for these in your Bible studies. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh 
was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Short but powerful gospel poem, isn't it? That's not all. And then in the New Testament, there are also 16 doxologies exalting our triune God. Please exalt the Lord our God in adoration with me as I read a couple of them. Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Please listen to me as I read this next doxology in its context. Revelation 5 verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. In a sense, such powerful adoration of our God is limited to heaven only. But in another sense, it isn't. It is in the sense that the fullest expression of adoration and the worship of the Lamb, along with every tongue and tribe and nation, can be experienced in the established kingdom under the rule of Christ. But we do get a glimpse of that um, in Christ's church here on earth, a faint reflection of that upcoming reality. Also because, did you know, The adoration, praising, and exalting our triune God is commanded in the scriptures for us to do here on earth. I read Deuteronomy 8, 10 earlier. Let me back that up with a couple of more passages. 1 Chronicles 16, verse 28. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. When the scripture says peoples instead of the plural people, it means every single people group on the face of the planet. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory, do his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. Hebrews thirteen fifteen. Through him then, through Christ then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that gives thanks to his name. There isn't a moment where adoration and praises of God are suspended in heaven. And according to Hebrews 13, 15, the same should be true in the church as well. It may, Psalm 33, 1 says, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. 
It means praises of God on the believer's lips are befitting. It is the right thing to do. If we don't, as Jesus said during the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, God is able to make the stones cry out. But we should not think of it as forced upon us, though. The phrase, fruit of lips, carries the connotation of natural outcome of the hearts and minds gripped by the glory of God. Adoration and exaltation of God does not come from God's enemies. It only comes from his people. God's enemies work around the clock to bring dishonor to his name. And that ought to be good enough reason for us to be spellbound in who God is and worship him and give him the glory that's due. Do you remember the famous quote from Westminster Catechism? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. How do we glorify God? It goes all the way back to the answer to Christ's petition, hallowed be your name, people becoming saved and worshiping God. By the purest grace of God alone, it's been 30 glorious years of Christian walk with God for me. To God be the glory. To God alone be the glory. I was 15 going on 16 when God graciously saved me. When I was a new believer, I memorized the names of God in the Bible, such as Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nissi, Jehovah Shalom, El Shaddai, El Elyon, Adonai, and so on. I used those names to and attributes to praise God, and I repeated them every day in my prayers. And I quickly ran out of things to praise God for who is an infinite being. That simply cannot be. So just how did the characters in the scriptures amass this knowledge of God that led them to praise him with such eloquence? Simply by delighting in and meditating on the word of God day and night. This habit of one of the the biblical characters, David, is recorded for us in Psalm 119 verse 27. Trust me, by God's grace, I can speak English. It's just the accent there. (laughs) This habit of one of the biblical characters, David, is recorded for us in Psalm 119, verse 27. Make me understand the way of your precepts, so I will meditate on your wonders. A couple of observations from Psalm 119, verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 27. We need God to give us this understanding. And that understanding precedes meditation. It starts with the hard work of studying the Bible, which seats the meditation, which in turn seats the adoration of God. Through the meditation of scripture, we can understand, with the help of the Holy Spirit, how glorious our God is. And that understanding will transform are the posture of the heart and renew the attitude of the mind, leading us to the adoration and celebration of God. A quick word of warning here. In the Word of Faith movement, they use Psalm 22, verse 3, which says, Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And so they reason God inhabits in the praises of his people. So they teach where God is, there is blessing. If we keep praising God, your heart's desires will be fulfilled. That's how they misinterpret and teach it. Brethren, we 
came from the dust. Creatures cannot manipulate their creator. Creatures exalting, magnifying, ascribing worth to their God in worship is the right and natural response from us. It's a language of creaturely dependence. We cannot add to God's glory as if we are placing a crown on his head through our adoration and worship. He was and is and always shall be glorious to the fullest extent. But we can and should lay our crowns at his feet. So based on what we have seen so far, how could we incorporate an element of adoration in our prayers? We can learn from the giants of faith who have gone before us. Immersing ourselves in the Psalms and meditating upon the prayers of Apostle Paul from the epistles would help a lot. Together, it would cover all kinds of prayers where God's greatness is expressed. It'll arm us with a beautiful prayer language. We only know of God from the scriptures, and sticking with the scripture language would ensure that we have the right view of God. The adoration of God starts with recognizing and understanding who God is from the pages of scripture. Let's look at the second adoration principle. Losing yourself in God leads us to recognize who we are. Losing yourself in God leads us to recognize who we are. It starts with recognizing who God is. And it leads to recognizing who we are. Only after understanding who God is, we will be able to clearly see ourselves as God sees us. Look at verse 14. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you and from your hand we have given you. This is the third time uh, in the recorded scriptures David humbly asks, who am I? First time during an encounter with Saul in 1 Samuel 18 when Saul made a false promise to give David his oldest daughter in marriage It says, but David said to Saul, who am I and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? Another time when God made a covenant with David that one of his descendants would have his throne established forever, referring to the Messiah. It says in 1 Chronicles 17 verse 16, then David the king went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? In our text in verse 14, we see David humbling himself again, recognizing that we owe our everything, our standing to God, physical, material, spiritual, to God's generosity. David didn't stop with that understanding. He became a faithful steward who lived his life with an open hand. It started with understanding who God is, and who we are, which produced the humility leading him to praise God in adoration. That life of adoration led David to understand not only who he is, but who all human beings are. People who are sojourners and who need daily provisions from God for their sustenance. Look at verse 15. For we are sojourners before you and tenants as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. The patriarchs were 
often referenced as aliens and strangers. In fact, God himself used that word to Abraham in Genesis 17, and since then, Abraham had used it a couple of times in his earthly dealings, and Moses also called himself that. Even after full possession of the land, God told Israel when he gave them the law and on the land redemption in Leviticus 25, the land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are but aliens and sojourners with me. So David could have picked up this term from Israel's generosity. I'm sorry, Israel's history. Like children growing up in the church, picking up words and casually using it. It is possible. But I think God had given David an understanding of who he really is. Because David acknowledged it not once, but multiple times in the pages of scripture. Psalm 39, 12, for I'm a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. Psalm 119, verse 19, I'm a stranger on the earth. David at this point has been the successful king of Israel, reigning from the promised land over all 12 tribes. And he had the absolute authority. There was no legislative body or judicial system that kept his power in check. Judicial system was such that they took care of smaller matters uh, before it ever bubbled up to his level. So David was it. So this is true God-honoring humility on David's part. And that should be true of us as well. Not even the wealth and security that have been granted to our generation can alter our God-assigned lot. The significance of this July 4th weekend is not lost on me, a naturalized American citizen. This is coming from the first-generation American's perspective, so take it for what it's worth. There is no country, in my humble and potentially flawed opinion, there is no country like the United States of America in the continent of Europe or in Asia or in Africa. Maybe the bigger metropolitan cities like London, Manila, and Paris show a glimpse of the United States, but there is no country like ours. But even as citizen of this great country on earth, or whichever country we get to be born in and and be brought up in in God's providence, we are called to imitate our forefathers of faith who looked beyond their promised earthly inheritance in Canaan to a heavenly country. The author of Hebrews talks about them. Hebrews 11, verse 13 All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Do you think our forefathers of faith got themselves entangled in the earthly and temporal things? When we truly humble ourselves and live like that heavenly city, that God has promised is everything to us, the author of Hebrews says, God will not be ashamed to be called our God. When you hear that phrase, God delights in being your God. How could we not 
break forth into praises and bow in adoration. The latter part of verse 15 in our text says, Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. We have no right even to life itself, which remains as a fleeting as a shadow. And so the worship of God in adoration is the most important thing we can do as believers in every aspect of our lives. I once read an article by Pastor John Piper that said, you can tell how your theology is changing when your prayers start changing. When we start understanding more of who God is and who we are, we start praying in such a way that we ask God's name to be adored above all things. Do we adore God's name above all things? That's the petition of Jesus. Hallowed be your name. So based on what we have considered so far, how could we incorporate an element of adoration in our living? Jonathan Edwards, Pastor Bretz, and many of our hero of faith has an answer. He said, the best moments of my life when I've been given to glorify God the most and realize the purpose for which I've been created. In those moments, I have been lifted up about, even about my salvation to focus God himself as he is in the triune self as the God of salvation and to revel in his glory as I abase myself at his feet. Biblically speaking, the exaltation of God goes hand in hand with us abasing ourselves, like prophet Isaiah did. Effective adoration cannot be done with an arrogant or a boastful spirit. So how would our humble prayer in adoration look like? Our prayers could resemble David's from this passage, John the Baptist's prayer, he must increase and I must decrease, or the tax collector's prayer, God be merciful to me, the sinner, or Mary Magdalene's no words, but cleaning the feet of Jesus with tears kind of prayer, or how about the cleansed leper who glorified God with a loud voice, fell on his face at the feet of Jesus and gave thanks to him. Adoration of God starts with recognizing and understanding who God is by meditating the scriptures and recognizing who we are in the light of who God is and as a result, humble ourselves in adoration and worship. Let's look at the third and final adoration principle. Losing yourself in God includes tangible expression of giving. Losing yourself in God includes tangible expression of giving. We see that in verses 16 through 20. Because true adoration is not restricted to words only. Since it comes from the transformed heart and mind, it affects the entire nature. And it shows itself in every area of our lives. Giving is one of the areas. Um, If you are a visitor here, I want you um, to know in no uncertain terms that at Summit Woods, we are not after your wallet or purse. The ministries of this church are more than adequately funded by the committed members of this body. Um, Just like the apostles longed for the good spiritual vibrancy in all of their congregations. As elders, we often long and pray for, for, for our members that the souls of our members would prosper in the Lord and that they would abide in him. Nothing more, nothing less. 
But we do aim to stand approved before God by not shying away in teaching the truth from any passage with any message. If it is in the scriptures, we have to learn from it because our eternal life is at stake. John 5.29. So in God's providence, we're going to talk now about how our use of money could be a tangible expression of adoration of our God. Look at verse 16. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name, it is from your hand and all is yours. Since I know, O my God, that you try the heart and delight in uprightness, I, in the integrity of my heart, have willingly offered all these things. So now, with joy, I have seen your people who are present here make their offerings willingly to you. What a beautiful phrase. I love this phrase in verse 16. It is from your hand and all is yours. It's a sign of maturity to recognize that all that we are and everything that we have, including material success, acts of human kindness, or spiritual birth, are all God's gifts to us. In fact, 2 Corinthians 9.15 tells us, even our Lord Jesus Christ is our indescribable gift from God. We owe it all. Here in this text, even Israel's generosity was inspired by God's generosity to them. Biblically faithful stewards are always generous because they are gripped by the glorious nature of their God and simply imitate their God's generosity. But they still need God's help to do it for the right reasons with right motives. So David prays for it. Look at verse 18. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, preserve this forever in the intentions of the heart of your people and direct their heart to you. It is important for us to understand the biblical history behind this phrase, intentions of the heart. So we can learn to pray like David prays here. In 1 Chronicles 28 verse 9, when David spoke to his son Solomon, he said, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father, and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. The same phrase has been used twice in Genesis, Genesis 6-5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. Genesis 8-21, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of men, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. In other words, without God's intervention, man's inner motives will remain evil continually. Even after learning that God has intimate knowledge of them. And they can only become pleasing to God through God's gracious work in our hearts, so David prays to that end. We see David making a petition to the Lord that he would direct their hearts of the people and his own son Solomon's, that he would preserve in the intentions of their hearts. Preserve what? What does this in the statement refer to? Preserve this forever. 
In the immediate context, he used this word this twice in reference to the offering given in abundance. Verse 14, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? Verse 16, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house. Even back in verse 1 of this chapter, David reminded the people, just like his son Solomon had a task to do, the people also have a task to consecrate themselves, keep giving willingly for the work of the Lord and rejoice in it. And that's exactly what the people did. Look at verse 9 of First Chronicles 29. And the people rejoiced because they had offered so willingly for they made their offering to the Lord with a whole heart. And King David also rejoiced greatly. So willingly, with a whole heart. These two phrases highlight the tangible expression of giving in adoration. So David is praying that God would preserve in the intentions of the people their end of the bargain, with their hearts directed to God himself, so that they would keep up with their generosity, gripped by God's generosity to them. David's prayer was not just so that they would keep giving willingly, but that God would keep their hearts loyal to him forever. Look at verse 19. And give to my son Solomon a perfect heart to keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, and to do them all, and to build the temple for which I have made provision. David prayed for the future king in front of the whole assembly, that his son Solomon would not only do his God-ordained task of building the temple, but that he would have a perfect heart to keep all of the commandments, testimonies, and statutes of the Lord and obey them. Both of David's prayers are noteworthy because keeping of the law is more important and pleasing to the Lord than building of the temple. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Adoration of God is not devoid of our obedience to God. God's name is glorified even in our obedience. A temple worship without a wholehearted devotion to the Lord um, would be an empty gesture. In the same way, our adoration and praises of God cannot be devoid of tangible expressions such as giving for the ministries of the Lord willingly and not under compulsion. And now we see in verse 20, it was actually done in complete devotion to the Lord. Then David said to all the assembly, verse 20, now bless the Lord your God and all the assembly bless the Lord, the God of their fathers and bowed low and did homage to the Lord and to the king. Having set an example of obedience to the Lord in gathering all that is needed for the temple, being generous with his own wealth for the work of the Lord, calling all people to consecrate themselves, blessing the Lord for who he is, David now calls on the nation of Israel, all those who have gathered there to bless the Lord their God. And the whole assembly was as if chomping at the bit to dive right in. Everyone bowed and did homage to the Lord first and then to the king. They weren't going to be a mute witness. So based on what we observed from the scriptures, how could we incorporate an element of adoration in our giving? It is important to realize that people did not stop with just being generous. 
but they gave as part of their worship and adoration of their God. Our giving means nothing if it's not an act of worship. If it's not an act of complete devotion, you simply got a tax write-off. That's it. Would you still give for the ministries of the Lord if a future federal administration removes the tax write-off policies for the churches? People in the scriptures did. Give and worship. Better yet, give as part of your worship. Don't just give. Even if your checks to the church are automated, praise God for his provisions on the day that you get paid, on the day that your check is scheduled to go out to the church. Pray that God would use your tithe and offerings for the extension of your kingdom, extension of his kingdom. What David and the nation of Israel did should also remind us of our corporate worship. Adoration of our God is done personally and together with our rest of body of Christ in our gatherings. And that's why it's important for us to gather together as a local body of believers. Um, every Sunday, where we sing songs steeped in biblical theology, infusing the adoration of God, we praise God together, edify each other, and give for the ministries of the visible church. Adoration is one of those biblical principles that we can keep growing into. Um, allow it to infectiously overflow and bring others into doing the same. And that's why it is both personal and corporate. So how did losing themselves in God look like for David and the nation of Israel in our passage? Their adoration of our God looked like literally bowing before the Lord God in reverence, praising, exalting, giving glory to God for who he is as the blessed triune God, for his characteristics, for what he has accomplished, and for what he has promised to accomplish. How would losing yourself in God look like, practically speaking? I pray that it will be similar to what we saw from this passage. Adoration and worship of God comes from knowing God, who he is and who we are. And both of those insights come from the scriptures. And that should permeate every aspect of our lives. In other words, we lose ourselves in God and it manifests itself in our words, walk, and works. Words of praise and exaltation of God in our prayers. Walk in humility, knowing that we owe it all to God. Works such as giving, imitating our Father's generous and endless giving. And worshiping with our local body, which also gives evidence for our private adoration of God. If you're not going to lose yourself in God here on earth, more than likely you'll spend eternity lost from God's goodness and only experience his wrath. If God and the things of God are not of paramount importance to you in your life, you will lose your soul unless you change the course of your life. Our worship is only acceptable to God through our great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not in Christ, God is not obligated to hear your prayers. But he does answer the prayers of those who fear him. All that I talked about this morning, how adoration starts with knowing God and who we are, 
all of its implications and expressions can be summarized by this one statement from Jesus. John 4.24 God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Let's pray. Lord of all creation, God of all glory, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, we praise you for all glory, honor, and power belongs to you. We were created for your glory. We did nothing to earn our salvation. You have graciously saved us from the bondages of sin. Our sins that are as red as a scarlet will be as white as snow. We thank you for that. Thank you for securely holding our souls in your loving hands. Father, one day we will be presented before you holy, blameless, and above reproach. Having been washed by the blood of the Lamb and kept in Christ Jesus, not by our strength, but by the continued work of your Holy Spirit in us. We thank you for that. We long for that day when we will be untouched by sin, even in the deepest recession of our souls. Come, Lord Jesus. Better is one day in your court than a thousand outside. We would rather stand at the threshold of the house of our God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. We praise you, Lord God, because you are the sun and shield, and you give grace and glory. You will not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. How blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. Please establish our footsteps in your word, and do not let any iniquity have dominion over us. In the precious name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. To God be the glory. Amen. Let's.